ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin Income Strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, simply a loaded podcast this week. Joining me will be Tony Rockty, Global Head of ETFs at Morgan Stanley, who earlier this month, they made their ETF debut. Uh, they rolled out their first six ETFs. These are all uh, ESG ETFs, uh, leveraging the Calvert brand, which uh, Morgan Stanley acquired Calvert as part of their uh, Eat and Vance acquisition back in 2021. And so we're going to discuss everything you might expect here. Uh, why Morgan Stanley entered ETFs now? Because ETF nerds will know that Morgan Stanley was uh, actually involved with ETFs back in the 1990s, believe it or not. They were a uh, pioneer in international ETFs with their World Equity Benchmark Series ETFs, the WEBs. They ended up selling those to Barclays in 2000. Barclays, of course, later rebranded to uh, iShares and, and sold to BlackRock in 2009. But Morgan never got back into ETFs up until now. And so we're going to discuss why they finally made that decision to uh, reenter the market. I'm very curious to hear why they're leading with ESG-focused ETFs. Everyone knows how I feel about ESG, so I am going to ask Tony about this. And then we'll also talk about their massive distribution capabilities. Uh, distribution is king in the ETF space. They have that in spades. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Tony. Also joining me this week will be David Shassler, head of quantitative investment solutions at Van Neck. And he's going to offer some excellent perspective around what continues to be Probably one of the biggest concerns for investors, inflation. He has some very strong views regarding inflation's stickiness and how investors should think about protecting their portfolios right now. So we'll discuss that and then also spotlight two potential inflation fighters in the Vanek Inflation Allocation ETF, ticker RAAX, and the Vanek Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker PIT, P-I-T. Now, to uh, start this week, I have Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth on the line. Of course, Todd is head of research at Vetify, and we're going to discuss five ETF stories 
I'm watching right now, along with a few stories that are on Todd's radar. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, welcome back to the uh, podcast. You were on vacation last week, correct? I was. Uh, so we had the very successful exchange conference. I then did a week to kind of recap what had happened from commentary. Then I went on vacation uh, with some family in Antigua. And what was great is that you prep things uh, by putting out the five <laughs> questions that you want to talk about on Twitter. Uh, so the whole world could get to see and be prepared for my answers while I was flying back. Hey, I try to keep it as easy as possible on this podcast, but nothing nothing replaces your in-depth analysis, which I'm looking forward to hearing. Uh, though I, I will say I'm glad you got a little bit of time off. I feel like you ran 100 miles an hour at exchange, so that, that was a well-deserved vacation, and, and I'm glad you enjoyed. Um, okay, so yes, last Friday I did tweet out these uh, five ETF stories I'm watching. I think, as you know, I like to do this from time to time, really just to uh, crystallize what I think is important in ETFs right now. It's just helpful for me. But I did think you were the perfect person to bounce these off of. And so what I'd like to do, I'm going to tee up each of these. You can offer a quick uh, hot take, and then I'll be sure to leave a few minutes at the end to see if there's anything you're watching, what, anything on your radar, and we can bat those around a little. So does all that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah, make sure to save me some time because we have a bet to, to re- recap on. Uh, oh, if that's the case, uh, I think given the way that bet's going, I'm going to make sure we, we don't have any time at the end. <laughs> uh, but look, the uh, the first story uh, is perfect, given that I'll be joined here in just a bit by Morgan Stanley's Tony Rockty. And I, I'm watching flows into their new ETFs. And I've got to tell you, Todd, Thus far, not much has gone into these products. Now, obviously, it's still very, very early. There's no question about that, right? They've only been out for about, what, three or four weeks. But I have decided that I'm going to view these ETFs as sort of the final litmus test for the entire future of ESG ETFs, which I I know that sounds weighty, but I just feel like if Morgan Stanley, with all of their distribution – if they can't get assets into these products, especially with a Calvert brand, which is well-known, well-respected in the responsible investing space, then nobody can do it. So so let's start there. Any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, well, this is going to be tough because you got three different areas here I want to dive into, and maybe I won't have enough time to go as deep. But uh, patience is required. It, it feels like we're just starting the road uh, on the road with with our kids in the backseat of a car, ours respectively, and they're complaining, are we there yet? Um, it's three weeks in. You know, I think Morgan Stanley's focus for the past year was getting the products live and with the focus of getting them live ahead of the exchange conference where 2,000 people were there, lots of media, lots of advisors, lots of other folks within the industry. And so now marketing and distribution efforts are starting to be ramping up. And that doesn't happen on day one. You know, for perspective, Capital Group, which I think you and I both believe were the ETF, was the ETF new issuer, if not even the issuer of the year of 2022. They already have $7 billion in assets just one year in. It wasn't until about four weeks, according to our verified data, that they started to see any meaningful flow. So we're about that point. So I'd say stay tuned. Um, 
I think the fact that you're, this is a litmus test for ESG is a bit of a challenge. I understand why it's Calvert and it's what their Morgan Stanley is leading with. But let's put in perspective the iShares ESG product, ESGU. That's the largest of those ESG ETFs, $20 billion. It has seen a billion dollars already of net ad flows to start the year. So I think sentiment is going to be more tied towards the, the bigger players initially. And I, I'm confident Tony's uh, at Morgan Stanley or Anthony Rockley, I guess let's be more formal, uh, is going to try to temper your expectations. Morgan Stanley has tremendous distribution, but it doesn't turn on on day one. A wirehouse like Morgan Stanley has set rules in order to get an ETF approved on the platform for advisors. I, I know you know this. It's different for an RIA as opposed to a wirehouse advisor. Those capital group ETFs uh, are not yet approved, as far as I know, on Morgan Stanley. So it, it takes time. Um, so hang in there, because I know you're bullish on, on Morgan Stanley's entry into the ETF marketplace, but three weeks is not, is not a trend. I'm pretty sure you just compared me to a child in the backseat of the car, <laughs> which, you know, that's probably fair uh, when it comes to ESG. Here, here's my only uh, counter to what you're saying is that it, you mentioned the, the flows out of the iShares ESG ETFs. I, I do think sentiment is poor around ESG ETFs as a whole. And we, we, we're not going to get into all that, the politicization of, of ESG and all of that stuff. I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm very bullish on Morgan Stanley ETFs as a whole longer term. There, there's no question about that. I think, as you know, that was one of my five predictions for this year. I think Morgan Stanley is going to be the ETF issuer of the year. That's, I, I would say, primarily based on my expectation that they're going to roll out additional products outside of the ESG realm. So um, I, I think Tony Rockte, excellent leader. They have they have an excellent uh, team as a whole in place there. I'm very bullish on what Morgan Stanley can be in ETFs. I, I guess I'm just not as bullish on the ESG side. And, and if it were me, I would have led with something else coming out of the box. So again, I know that Calvert brand is highly respected. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Todd, last year, uh, those Calvert mutual funds that they have actually took in inflows where, you know, I think we, we know that it was a bloodbath across the mutual fund space as a whole with outflows. So uh, I think everything you said there is, is, is good. I just, I do think the sentiment around ESG ETFs as a whole, as a whole is poor. I, I don't know if you want to quickly respond to that. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll let Tony uh, cover things more about the broader plan and lineup, but I would note they've got a couple of non- traditional or non-ESG products is a short-term fixed income product. And we've seen other asset managers like J.P. Morgan uh, and Goldman Sachs and, and others have success mm-hmm. with, with active short-term fixed income. So I think, I think Morgan Stanley's on a strong path. I just think they've taken a step or two, uh, and, and it's more of a marathon than a sprint to, to get the flows for them. All right. Speaking of a sprint, we're going to have to sprint our way through these these next four stories uh, to leave you some time here at the end. So let's just go rapid fire here. Second story I'm watching, and I can't wait for this next week. We're going to hear oral arguments from Grayscale and the SEC regarding Grayscale's attempt to convert their Bitcoin trust, uh, ticker GBTC, into a spot ETF. Of course, Grayscale sued the SEC last year. And now the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals will hear both sides. And all of this will be made public immediately. I I, I believe anyone can actually listen in on this. 
And, uh, you know, look, we're not going to rehash all of the stuff surrounding spot Bitcoin ETFs. Listeners of this podcast are are well-versed in uh, my views here. But my question for you is, do you think these um, oral arguments could actually put some pressure on the SEC, even if not from a legal standpoint? I wonder if public opinion could be swayed if Grayscale presents a highly compelling case, and especially if the court does ultimately decide to side w- with Grayscale. Just any any thoughts on how this might play out? Well, I, I, a couple of things to just note. Um, I was surprised, given how close we are to the court case, that I think GBTC is trading at a 45% discount. It is, correct. And that asset value, that certainly shows that the sentiment is away from this being a successful case for Grayscale. You, you would think that that would have narrowed, let alone even turned into a premium, but certainly have narrowed if the community thought that this was a possibility, that a stronger possibility that they were going to win. Um, I think the SEC is, has been consistent. I don't think they're going to be swayed by public sentiment. I think that there is public sentiment wanting a, a ETF. You know, we, I think you spoke with Tom Hendrickson uh, on our team, president of Vetify, um, last week about the survey data that we had with advisors. Advisors are waiting for this ETF. They're looking for more clarity from a regulatory perspective. So I think the SEC is not going to change their views, uh, but I think it's going to, well, I think it's for you and for people who are eagerly awaiting such a product, you get to hear more of the rationale beyond the the typewritten words and, and someone actually defending um, this. So I don't think I don't think sentiment is on the side of grayscale in the investment community, but I think for a narrow audience, this matters a lot. Yeah, and I'll say for anybody who's tracking the ETF space like you or I, just be prepared because I think we're going to see a fire hose of uh, headlines over the next few weeks, uh, you know, coinciding with this. Your point on the discount is a great one because, yeah, GBTC is currently trading at a 45% discount, and you would think that if there was some positivity out there, uh, that would close a bit, especially because I think there's a decent chunk of people who are are buying that, uh, buying GBTC at a discount, just hoping that it will ultimately close. So you would think you have some some demand there, and even that's not enough to, to really move that discount. It's been stuck there for quite a while. So uh, you're right, that's a good gauge on a sentiment. Um, okay, the next story I'm tracking is the uh, expiration of Vanguard's multi-share class patent. Uh, that happens in May, and I'm sure you saw just a few weeks ago, PGIA filed with the SEC for uh, active ETFs, which would utilize a structure. And as I noted in my tweet, and, and I know you know this as well, it's certainly not a layup that the SEC approves this, not just PGIA, but anybody uh, filing, because the structure doesn't fall under the ETF rule. And so anyone who wants to use this will need to get specific relief from the SEC. Just high level, what's your expectation here? Like, do you think we'll see a bunch of issuers at least attempt to pursue this route? We don't know what the SEC is going to do, but do you think we'll see a bunch of issuers uh, try? Well, I think we should. We certainly should see issuers try. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that there are asset managers that only offer mutual funds and not ETF choices. It's what investors want to own. It's what advisors want to offer. So we've been seeing the beginning of conversions. We are seeing more phone-like strategies come out. Tiro Price and Fidelity don't have share classes, but they have semi-transparent versions of some of the more popular mutual funds. I think we're going to see more ETF share classes. 
because it just makes sense to offer an ETF option. What I was intrigued by, two things, that one that you touched on and one that you didn't that I'll just add to it, is one, this is going to be for active. I had always thought about the Vanguard patent being tied to index-based strategies, and there aren't a whole lot of fund families with index mutual funds that don't already have an ETF presence. But that these would be moving to daily disclosure is at least the way that I understand it, and not a semi-transparent structure. So these would be mutual funds today that would essentially be converting to this structure entirely of disclosing holdings for the ETF share class. They don't have to disclose the mutual fund share class, but it's the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a win-win for everybody that's involved. I really hope we see more asset managers enter this route, whether or not they're successful, because if it's approved, you just want to be at the front of the line. Well, what I'll add to that is that there's been a lot of talk around mutual fund to ETF conversions. We've seen those those pick up and with with mixed results. I talked about that on the podcast recently as well. But I, I bring that up because if a mutual fund and a mutual fund issuer has a significant chunk of assets in 401k plans, that makes that mutual fund ETF conversion really a non-starter. And so the share class uh, structure would offer a way around that, and I think that'd be very attractive to mutual fund issuers who, again, have sizable assets in 401k. So we'll see. I mean, PGIA had a filing there. I, I'm fascinated to see if we get a bunch of filings over the next few months as that patent does expire. But then again, it'll come down to the SEC, who, as we just talked about, has their hands full with a number of things, including a, a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, okay, the fourth story I'm watching. And I, I know this one's a little uh, niche, but I, I'm really intrigued by these Round Hill big ETFs that should be launching any day now. So these are uh, highly concentrated ETFs that focus on specific sectors or subsectors. They have uh, tech, defense, banks, railroads, oil. I think there's one for airlines as well. But these will use derivatives. Uh, these are considered non-diversified funds. And I noted in my tweet you know, you look at uh, single stock ETFs, they really haven't attracted much in terms of assets outside of the Tesla-related products. I think part of that is market-driven, right? These, these launched into a poor market environment. There's not as much uh, froth out there as we saw in uh, late 2020, early 2021. And so maybe it's not uh, the, the perfect environment for those types of products. But I'll, I'll just ask you, do you think these broader concentrated ETFs might fare better if I can use broader and concentrated in the, uh, in the same sentence? So I, I do. I'm really excited about these pending products. I, I think it's understandable that you're comparing them and using single stock ETFs, but we're talking about five or six companies or five or six shares are going to be represented. Um, I think the airline and the bank ETFs are pending ones are most interesting to me. You think if you want to get exposure to the five or six largest banks, you could own the financial select sector spider ETF, but you'd have Berkshire Hathaway as your largest holding. Or you could own the spider bank ETF, KBE, but you'd have a 2% weighting within each of those banks because it's an equally weighted approach and not 20% of the assets in JP Morgan and 20% in Wells Fargo. And I could go on and on naming the banks, and I'd probably leave one out along the way. Or the airline ETF, you know, there's one of those U.S. Global Jets, J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. You just have to say it that way, <laughs> I feel like. Um, 
but it owns Boeing and TripAdvisor. It just doesn't own United and JetBlue and other major airlines alone. So you don't get the single stock risk. I think there's a broader use case to these products. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is at a fee of 29 basis points, they're going to be relatively cheap compared to the incumbent products. I think the Jets product is 60 basis points. The, the Spider Bank ETF KBE is 35 basis points. So you're already getting an advantage there. So yeah, I'm excited about these. This is these are some pretty cool products that are coming from Roundhill. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I mean, the 29 basis points, I think, is an important item to point out. But um, if you don't want that single stock risk, but you still want some pop in your portfolio, I know uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas always talks about hot sauce in, an, in a portfolio, right? You have your your core beta, your, your cheap Vanguard and iShares and, and those sorts of uh, exposures. And if you if you want to add to that, you can look to something like this where you're going to have a little bit more juice. Uh, but again, not have that single stock risk. So I, I'm fascinated to see how these do. And, you know, there's there's really two audiences. One could be what I just spoke to, which maybe is a more strategic investor, longer term investor who just wants to have an area where they, they have that more significant potential upside. But also these could become pretty good trading tools. Um, if if they get some uptake, just because you can really yeah. you can really target a specific segment. Yeah, if you wanted to get, head into earnings season and, and find a bank earnings season because you were bullish on that, these would be the, a perfectly appropriate way to be able to get targeted exposure. You get the benefits of the ETF from some diversification and liquidity, but you get the ability to target that exposure, and diversification works both for and against you. You know. Five of 50 stocks isn't necessarily a targeted approach towards towards large cap banks or, or, or airlines in particular. And I should mention a shameless plug here in a couple of weeks. I will be joined by Round Hill's Dave Mazza. So hopefully these products are out by then and we can uh, we can. I hope so. <laughs> It'll be a much better conversation if the, if the products are live. That's right. Um, OK, lastly, and we don't need to spend a ton of time on this one because I, I do feel like I've covered this topic ad nauseum uh, re- recently. But active ETFs have taken in some 35 to 40 percent of all ETF flows this year. Uh, that according to the aforementioned Bloomberg's uh, Eric Balchunas. Todd, that's an astonishing number. Now, I- I'm not sure if that can hold up for the year, but that definitely has my attention. And, and so I'm curious, what do you make of that? I mean, you look last year, I think we both thought 14 or 15 percent of, uh, of flows by active ETFs was pretty impressive. We're now talking double or triple that. Yeah, this is this is much stronger than I think I would have expected. I, I don't think it will hold. And we can come back to why if, if we have time. Um, but yeah, we've, we've seen some of the larger asset managers enter the ETF marketplace with active products and have success. Uh, you've got Capital Group that we touched on earlier with the Capital Growth ETF that's been popular this year. Dimensional Funds and Avantis continue to gather assets with products like DFAC and AVUV, to name just a few of them. And then, of course, JEPI, the JP Morgan Equity Premium Income. It's pulled in $4 billion of net inflows in, le- in basically two months. Um, that's on pace to be much stronger than what was already a great year in, in 2022. So I think we're seeing continued interest by advisors in this, in, in this environment. But I, I'll just put some perspective in this. We're not seeing demand overall for um, 
you know, core equity ETFs. IBZ has net outflows. Hmm. VU has just over $2 billion of net inflows uh, this year, which is trailing JEPI, for example. So the ETF marketplace is, is strong, but I don't think we're seeing the same level of growth that we might have thought. And so the denominator is, is, is not as big, so the, the percentage looks higher. Is that why you don't think the active ETF uh, inflows are sustainable? Because ultimately, if, if the market does shift and we start seeing more inflows uh, as a whole, those flows are going to go into the IDVs and VUs of the world? I do. So I think the pace of, uh, of dollar amount, and I don't have the number in front of me to, to, or the math quickly enough uh, in my head to do what is 35 or 40% actual. I think on a, every quarter, I think we're going to see consistent inflows to active ETFs, but I think we're going to see passive gain ground uh, as the year progresses, uh, just in terms of overall demand. We've seen money moved into uh, corporate bond ETFs in January and then moved out of that and moved into treasury ETFs in February. So we've, we've seen a bit of a, a quick rotation uh, for for fixed in, within fixed income as well. Well, I think you know at the uh, beginning of the year, and I think you were on board with this as well, one of my predictions was that we would see a trillion dollars in ETF inflows this year. They, they need to get on it. I think last I checked, we were only at maybe 50, 55 billion for the year. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think it's going to take the market sentiment shifting, getting a little more positive here, even though I know we came out of the gate uh, decently on the equity side. Uh, the flows haven't been there. So we'll see what happens. Um, okay, Todd, I have strategically left you only two minutes. <laughs> uh, oh, for... well, then I'm just not going to stop talking. I'm going <laughs> to throw in two here that I'm Yeah, so, so what's one, on your radar? Go ahead. So one, so we didn't make a, I agree with you. I thought we'd have a trillion dollars. So you and I didn't make a bet on that. But we did make a bet on how much money would go into gold ETFs. Uh, for the year of 2023, they had outflows of memory serves correctly uh, in 2022. But I got you to agree to a five billion dollar uh, bogey for the for the category or subcategory. When I looked uh, late la- using last week's data, it was about 270 million of net inflows. Uh, feel free to tell me if that's not consistent with what you thought. So that's on pace for less than two billion for the year. That would still be good compared to what we would have thought relative to last year's outflows, but it looks like the steak dinner trend uh, for me is in favor. We've had IAU and IAUM, two of the larger ETFs with net outflows. I, I'm I'm concerned uh, with what you have there. And before you respond, because I want to squeeze in one other thing that I'm focused on, and then you can tell me uh, where you want to take me to steak uh, in New York <laughs> in, in, in 10 months, is... Uh, we're also expecting that in mid-March, March 17th, that there's going to be a sector shakeup. The GIX companies um, are changing. Visa and MasterCard are now technology stocks. They're going to be financials. Target, which actually just reported results, is going from consumer discretionary, consumer staples. There's about 15 or so S&P 500 companies that are moving. And it just goes to show you that index-based ETFs are not static. Uh, you do need to do your homework and make sure you know what's inside. So on March 17th, uh, while you might be having a beer, uh, I'll be watching uh, what's happening in the sector changes for the, the State Street and Vanguard and Invesco ETFs. Todd, I love you bringing that up. So first of all, I'll, I'll make this real quick. Yes, on March 17th, I'm sure I'll be having a beer, hopefully enjoying the first round of the, uh, the NCAA tournament. Um, to your second story, I love you covering that because – 
I, I would say there's nobody better in the business at discussing what's inside an ETF and, and why it matters. And so you bringing up those sector changes, I think, is important. Investors need to look inside and make sure they understand these changes and how that may uh, impact, especially for new money, uh, allocating new money moving forward. In terms of the, uh, the gold ETF bet, thank you for bringing that up. I, I knew you were going to bring that up. Yes, last year we had $3 billion in outflows from physical gold ETFs. Our bet is that I, I was bullish at the beginning of the year. My predictions aren't looking so good, uh, by the way, at this uh, juncture. But the, the bet is, yes, we, that I thought more than $5 billion would go in uh, for 2023. We still have a lot of time left. Uh, so I am not giving up on this. Gold, in terms of price performance, is flat this year, roughly flat to, to down a, a point. So um, I, I'm not giving up on this one. The GLDM, the Spider Gold Mini Shares Trust, has taken in about a, a half of a, a billion dollars. But to your point, the two iShares products have, have lost uh, nearly that much. And so we'll see what happens. I'm staying, uh, I'm staying bullish there, Todd. Well, I like that, and I, I like that you're staying confident. Again, I'm not, I'm not counting my, my steak before it's cooked or whatever the butchered uh, analogy that I just had there. But I'd encourage you to have the same level of patience with all of your picks uh, of the five. So be patient with Morgan Stanley and, and tell Tony I say hello and ask him some non-ESG questions as well. I will. Hey, that's a, a great ending spot to our conversation, Todd. Always appreciated. Uh, excellent stuff this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foreside Fund Services, LLC. My next guest is Tony Rocky, Global Head of ETFs at Morgan Stanley, who at the beginning of February, they rolled out their first ETFs. Now, this is an initial lineup of six ETFs altogether. These are all leveraging the Calvert brand in their responsible investment framework. Uh, Calvert is a global leader in responsible investing, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And uh, last I checked, these ETFs have about $140 million in assets. And Tony is now on the line with me from New York. Tony, welcome to the uh, podcast. A pleasure uh, to connect. Yeah, uh, great to connect, Nate. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I feel like I have seen you everywhere over the past month. A lot of media appearances. I know you were down at uh, Exchange. How has the last month or so been for you? Yeah, it's it's certainly been busy. 
Uh, I joined Morgan Stanley to build uh, the Morgan Stanley Investment Management ETF platform almost exactly a year ago. Uh, we filed on August uh, 16th. Uh, we went effective the third week of January. Uh, we hit the ground running February 1st with the launch of the six new Calvert ETFs. And I would tell you, Nate, uh, I've never been so tired at the starting line, but uh, <laughs> we're excited about the communication plan, the branding, the digital marketing, and certainly boots on the ground uh, with distribution. So we're we're excited uh, and you know out of the gate and uh, trading and most importantly the experience for clients, both institutional and advisor clients, has been um, uh, very strong in in the first three to four weeks. All right. So in terms of your ETF entrance now, I want to ask you about uh, a comment I saw uh, that you made at Exchange in response to some criticism about Morgan Stanley being late to the ETF party. You said, how long is the event, Uh, which I loved. And I want to have you talk more about that, because I noted this at the top of the podcast Morgan Stanley was actually involved in the very earliest days of ETFs back in the 1990s, but no ETF presence since then up until now. And so I, I can certainly see where uh, some of the criticism would have come from. Why aren't you worried about being late here? Yeah, let, let me unpack that, Nate, and I think it's an excellent question. Uh, let's start with why ETFs, why now? Morgan Stanley Investment Management employs a unique client-focused approach, uh, like many asset managers. But when we looked at our growing segments, particularly the REA and the self-directed investor, it was clear we had to meet clients where they are, and we need to have the ETF wrapper alongside a large mutual fund complex, alongside the SMA and the customization engine uh, from the likes of Parametric. So again, um, when we looked at, you know, post-acquisition of Eaton Vance uh, well over two years ago, Nate, you had the great alpha engine in Eaton Vance and Morgan Stanley Investment Management. You had a customization uh, pioneer in Parametric on the SMA front, and you had Calvert that's been doing ESG for over 40 years. And when we looked at the vehicles we offered, uh, it was clear to us if we want to expand choice, which we do, uh, we have to have an ETF solution alongside mutual funds and SMAs. And what I always tell folks is I, I don't think this is an either or, it's an and. Uh, it's not either an ETF or an SMA or either a mutual fund uh, or an ETF. Frankly, most advisors, institutional clients use both. And, and so we want to make that available uh, to our clients. Okay, so this initial lineup of six ETFs, let me go through these uh, real quick. So there's the Calvert U.S. Large Cap Core Responsible Index ETF, ticker CVLC, the Calvert U.S. Large Cap Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Index ETF, ticker CDEI, uh, the Calvert U.S. Midcap Core Responsible Index ETF, CVMC. Uh, there's an International Responsible Index ETF, ticker CVIE. There's a U.S. Select Equity ETF, ticker CVSE. And then lastly, the uh, Calvert Ultra Short Investment Grade ETF, ticker CVSB. And we're not going to uh, drill down into all of these, but Tony, maybe give us the high-level overview here. What, what are you attempting to do with this initial suite? Yeah, let, let me start with the logic on the Morgan Stanley Investment Management ETF platform, Nate. Um, we are focused on building multi-brand, 
ETFs from the brands I just mentioned. Uh, we're focused on equity and fixed, uh, and we're also focused on multi-jurisdiction. Our focus in full year 23 will be on U.S.-listed ETFs, but we're certainly spending time uh, in Europe. And as you look around the corner in future years, you, could have, you can envision uh, a broader global ETF platform with locally listed ETFs. Specific to Calvert, um, the logic behind why Calvert is this is all that Calvert does. They're an ESG pioneer. They've been doing it over 40 years. They launched one of the industry's first mutual funds, Nate. And, you know, they, they were even in net inflows in full year 22. Very few mutual fund companies saw net positive inflows full year 22. Um, so they're a pioneer. We, we believe we're one of the authentic ESG players in the U.S., uh, and it really complements uh, the existing mutual fund lineup we have from Calvert. We know investors in a 401k, for example, are going to continue to use Calvert mutual funds, but we heard loud and clear specifically from institutions and advisors that they would like an ETF wrapper um, with the Calvert engine focused on ESG. I think of the six you mentioned, uh, the two out of the gate, the strongest are CVSB, the ultra-short bond ETF from Calvert. It's fully transparent, actively managed, almost a 6% yield, delivers great value at 24 basis points, so extremely competitive uh, in the ESG ETF market. Uh, and also CVLC, uh, the Calvert large cap. We've had uh, interest out of the gate from um, some large institutional investors, uh, and we also know that's um, a critical capability uh, in, in Calvert, you know, across the platform. Tony, you mentioned the existing Calvert mutual fund lineup. If I'm not mistaken, three of these ETFs are essentially versions of those existing Calvert index mutual funds. Is that correct? Um, that is correct. So there's six uh, ETFs. Four are actually passively managed. One is systematic active, and one is fully transparent active fixed income. In three of the cases, uh, Calvert Large Cap, Calvert Mid Cap, and Calvert International, they're priced at 15 basis points for the large cap, 15 uh, for the mid cap, and 18 for the international. Those are all uh, similar to the mutual fund counterpart. In the case of active management, Nate, and I think you're asking an excellent question, are we really envision um, complementing our active mutual fund capabilities and not cloning. So for active, we'll differentiate just like we did on the uh, CVSB, the Calvert Ultra Short Bond ETF is actually differentiated uh, from the mutual fund version. It's uh, investment grade, it's a little more conservative, and it doesn't own loan, bank loans or high yield, for example, in the ETF wrapper. Tony, something else that caught my attention on uh, CDEI, which is the Calvert U.S. Large Cap Diversity Equity and Inclusion Index ETF. I saw that uh, Morgan Stanley has committed two basis points of the net annualized assets under management to go to DEI initiatives or DEI-focused organizations. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we spent a lot of time on CDEI. Uh, you know, we, we knew there was demand from institutional clients. Our president and CEO uh, was the former CIO of CalPERS, for example. So we have great reach into government entities, 
institutional clients, and we knew this was an important area. Secondly, it was very important to Morgan Stanley as an organization, something we believe in, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. And so the advisor will make a contribution from its own resources annually after the end of each calendar year to certain diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, as you said, in the amount of two basis points of the net annualized assets under management uh, of the index. So uh, we also priced it, made at 14 basis points. It's the lowest cost of our six ETFs, and it's 30% lower uh, in terms of price than the next closest DEI-focused competitor ETF. So, you know, for that reason, um, you know, it's, it's important, you know, to our organization. It's also important to clients. Uh, and, and, and I listen to your podcast often. You know about thematic ETF investing. And, you know, it, it is a theme-based ETF, and that's an area where, you know, advisors have expressed interest as well. Okay, so if you listen to the podcast uh, fairly often, then you're probably aware that I'm what most people would call an ESG skeptic. And uh, I'm not going to get into my full diatribe here, but let's just say I think ESG ETFs as a whole are fighting a uh, significant uphill battle. And so I did want to ask you, Tony, why start with ESG ETFs coming out of the gate? Why not start with traditional active strategies, which are really uh, resonating with ETF investors right now, if you look at flows, or even start with some more plain vanilla index ETFs where Morgan Stanley Advisors and your investment management division, they could potentially use those in portfolios instead of uh, competing products. Why start with ESG, where flows haven't been great recently, and there has been some controversy uh, in this space? Yeah, there's there's no question about it. ESG has had headwinds. Um, interestingly, if you looked at the first quarter of 22, uh, ESG saw inflows to the tune of about $10 billion as a category. And as, as you mentioned, in the second, third, and fourth quarter, uh, obviously headwinds for a number of different reasons. Um, let, let me unpack that and, and just hit two or three points. Number one, given Morgan Stanley's investment management's deep history with active management, you can anticipate a good portion of the ETF platform and the brands I mentioned will be focused on actively managed ETFs in the future. Um, specific to Calvert, Calvert has a long history and commitment and a distinct approach uh, to ESG. And, you know, as I mentioned up front, they're a pioneer uh, in this space. I think Calvert's expertise in history and methodology, which is active, by the way, Nate, really differentiates itself uh, from many of the peers in the ESG uh, ETF category. And I think that's the second reason. But when we looked at the total addressable market for ESG ETFs uh, in, in 22, when you know, we began to build the platform, uh, it was very clear over the past three years, investors have voted with their pocketbook, and we've seen well over two-thirds of net inflows into the ESG category in the U.S. going to the ETF solution. Uh, so, look, I'm not here to predict what markets are going to do. I'm not going to predict uh, the, the current environment. But what I can tell you is if there's an investor, be it institutional, financial advisor, that income, that um, implements ESG into their portfolio management process, you know, who better to provide that capability than Calvert with 
over 40 years of experience. And frankly, this is all they do, Nate. And I, I think that's the takeaway. Um, but again, I, I, I would want to take a step back and remind you our focus is on that broad platform with multiple brands centered on active management and, and really bringing the, uh, truly the best of uh, delivering the best of Morgan Stanley investment management you know, through an ETF solution. And to that last point, Tony, can you just talk a little bit more about that? You mentioned uh, the commitment to actively managed ETFs, whether ESG or otherwise. And I certainly don't expect you to give us your full playbook on this podcast, but ju- just talk a little bit more about what we might expect in terms of future ETF launches from Morgan Stanley. Yeah, I think I, I hit it up front, you know, multi-brand, the brands I mentioned, certainly Eaton Vance, Parametric, we're certainly evaluating, you know, Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And that that's not only here in the U.S., but that's globally. But but we're staying very focused, Nate, on the U.S. market, full year 23. We've got a lot on our plate, uh, and we want to execute. Um, the other thing I would I would want you to take away is, the point I mentioned about active management and what's unique about the Calvert lineup in that launch, we now have a capability focused on passive. We have a capability focused on systematic active ETFs, and we have a fixed income, fully transparent active ETF capability. So if you think about what we've built in the past 12 months and you apply that to the brands I mentioned in the future without getting specific, um, you can see you know, where this um, platform, you know, is going. Just a couple of minutes left here before I let you go. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but every year I put together these five ETF predictions. And one of my predictions for 2023 was actually that Morgan Stanley would be the ETF issuer of the year. And there are several reasons for that, but I would say probably the biggest is, is what I was alluding to earlier, which is that Morgan Stanley has... Uh, distribution. You, you do have this army of financial advisors. You have a large investment management division. Uh, you, you know, between those two, we're talking, last I checked, something like five to six trillion dollars in assets. How important will that be for your ETF lineup moving forward? Look, it, it's very important. There's no question about it. Uh, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management is, is a world-class uh, distributor here in the U.S., but there are other important wirehouse broker dealers that distribute ETFs, as you know, and critical to the logic to why enter the ETF market. And I said it up front, uh, the RAAs are very important. So when we look at the two largest custody and clearing platforms in the U.S., that represents almost a third of ETF assets. And we know both of those custodians are very focused on the REA segment. So we also know if you look at Ceruli data, you know, well over a third of the REA is allocating their book of business uh, to ETFs or a third of their book of business is allocated uh, to ETFs. But when you look at um, the power users, you know, it's probably upwards of 45 to 50% of their books. So REAs are critical alongside certainly the wirehouse broker dealers, not only our own, but others. But as I mentioned, the institutional market is also very important. We manage today well over $200 billion in alternatives. I didn't mention that up front, but we've got great reach uh, into the institutional market, both here in the U.S. and overseas. And, and that's an important market of distribution over time, 
uh, we'll, we'll certainly look to expand. Well, Tony, really enjoyed the conversation this week. Congratulations on the ETF entrance. Uh, I, I certainly wish you all the success. We'll have to do a, uh, a check-in later this year to see how things are going. But thank you for joining me. Great. Thank you so much, Nate. Have a great day. That was Tony Rockti, Global Head of ETFs at Morgan Stanley. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin Income Strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. joined by David Schassler, head of quantitative investment solutions at VanEck, who currently offers nearly 70 ETFs, over $53 billion in ETF assets. That includes their most recent launch from back in December, the VanEck Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker PIT, PIT, which does fall under uh, David's purview. He's a portfolio manager on this, as he is with the VanEck Inflation Allocation ETF, ticker R-A-A-X, and we are going to discuss both of those ETFs. Uh, David's on the line with me from New York. David, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, so we're going to get into both of those ETFs, but I want to start with something that you said in a recent blog, which really caught my attention. So you said, quote, high inflation is not as rare as you think and takes an average of 18 years to resolve. 18 years. So let's start there. Give us some context around that. There are four major economic regimes. High growth, low growth, high inflation, and low inflation. If you look back since the inception of the CPI in 1914, you'll find that high inflation above 4% happens around 30% of the time. 30%. And inflation above 5% happens over 20% of the time. Just because we've experienced disinflation for such a long period of time doesn't mean, in fact, that's actually a rare event. It just means that we haven't experienced it in a long time. And people are positioning based off this idea of high inflation will never occur. And if it does occur, it's going to go away tomorrow just because they're not used to it. And history contradicts that directly. Well, let me ask you this. On that same blog I mentioned, you noted that the 2010s were obviously characterized by low growth and, and low inflation. And my sense is that you now believe we're going to see more of a uh, stagflationary environment moving forward, low growth and high inflation. So is that your base case right now? Unfortunately, it is. Unfortunately, it is where we're going to be in this period of, listen, we've got a lot of debt. And that lot of debt is likely going to lead to lower growth for an an extended period of time. And when you couple that with high inflation, and you asked this question at the, at the start, and I, I didn't fully answer it, so let me just answer that directly because they, they, these two questions merge together. I, the history of inflation is that once inflation presents itself as it does now, it takes a long time to resolve. So that 18 years that, that you cited came from a study that we did that started in the 1960s, and it showed globally, based off G10 countries, 
how long, once inflation pierces above 5%, does it take to fall below 2%? Now, the last major inflationary events that we had here in the United States were the 1940s and the 1970s, and both of those events lasted at least a decade, and you get periods of high inflation, disinflation, maybe even deflation, as is in the case of the 1940s, and then inflation materializes again, and you get these inflationary waves that last a long period of time, and you get an up an average level of inflation around 5%. And, and that's what we're expecting as our base case, where we get bursts of inflation, pockets of disinflation, potentially even deflation, followed by a period of inflation again with an above average level of inflation for an extended period of time. Why is that? What's the driver there? Because I think that a, a decent number of investors feel like Let's say we do get a recession later this year, and perhaps one that is fairly deep. I think the thought is that then inflation would ease along with that recession. So, so talk, talk about these waves. Let, let, let's directly tackle what you said first, is that the majority of people, first off, the majority of people assume that we were never going to get inflation. And then their argument pivoted to, we're only going to get mild inflation. And then it pivoted to, all right, well, inflation's extreme, but it's just transitory, then it's going to go away. And it's continued to evolve and as people accept the reality. So the market, in aggregate, has been wrong about this. So, so let's just be very clear about that. And we've been an outlier in our view from the beginning for a very long time now that inflation's going to be a much more significant problem than most people expect. So um, have no... Um, qualms about saying that our view is not consistent with the majority, and the majority has been wrong. So, so I just want to say that up front. Second, when you deal with inflation and periods of economic weakness, the idea is really simple, is that, yes, periods of economic recessions, overall economic weakness, are going to bring down the inflation. And this is what we're talking about, the waves. So the inflationary forces, in our view, are going to outlive the Fed's ability to directly fight inflation because there's so much debt on the books, because governments have so much debt. So they've only recently been increasing interest rates, and they did they moved a lot in a very short amount of time. It takes a long time for the implications of what they did with rates to work their way into the economy, and there's a lot of reasons why they're working their way in, maybe even slower now than they did in the past. The bottom line is, is that they're going to cause a lot of economic destruction given the amount of debt. The longer they keep interest rates up, anybody can jack rates up for a short amount of time. Um, the trick is, can you keep rates up for an extended period of time to fight and actually outlive inflation? And that we don't think is credible, given how much debt that we have in the system. Just to sort of uh, drive this overall point home, I would say the backdrop to your blog was that you're getting a lot more questions from investors around whether they should actually avoid exposure to real assets right now because inflation is falling. And obviously, inflation is still extremely high. But if you look at, say, CPI, it has come down, right? And you responded to that question with a resounding no, that you would compare that to canceling flood insurance during a, a, a hurricane, which I love that. Um, just talk a little bit more about that thought process. I, I, I think, obviously, it dovetails into what we were just discussing, but I think this will help set us up nicely to talk about the two ETFs. Let's talk about asset allocation first, and then let's dovetail into what, how you should tactically position around it. Up front, I, I spoke about how common low growth, high growth, high inflation, and low inflation are. So your asset allocation, in our view, should have assets that could perform in each of those regimes. So 
people ask me, well, if we're going to go into recession, should I not own real assets? And I push that back and say, well, if we're going to go into recession, should you sell all of your stocks and all of your credit-based fixed income? Well, the answer is, of course, no, right, because you want to maintain diversification. It's the same thing with real assets. We've done studies that show, on average, during a period of higher inflation, you really need around 15%, 1-5% to diversify basket of real assets to in order to maintain pricing power within your portfolio to protect against inflation. So we believe that people should have around 15%. Now, from there, if they wanted to dial it up or down by 5%, we think that that makes a lot of sense. But this whole idea that People are going to bet their nest egg or the nest egg of their clients based off their ability to forecast economic regimes is ludicrous to us. So not owning a core allocation to real assets in a meaningful dosage doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It especially doesn't make sense during the eye of the storm that you spoke about before, which is the high inflation that we're experiencing right now. Okay, so perfect segue here. Let's talk about those uh, two ETFs, two potential inflation fighters. And the first one I want to ask you about is the VanEck Inflation Allocation ETF, ticker RAAX. Uh, maybe explain what this holds and, and why you do think it's a good option, given everything we just discussed. Sure. So big picture RAAX, which is the Inflation Allocation ETF, big picture, it's a diversified and adaptive approach to fighting inflation. It owns the three key categories of inflation-fighting assets from our perspective. The first, resource assets. We're talking about commodities. We're talking about natural resource equities. Natural resource equities, historically and currently, make a lot more money when commodity prices are elevated. That's the first. The second major bucket is financial real assets. Gold bullion and gold miners, historically have been key inflation hedges because the scarcity and the detachment from the inflationary pressures of fiat currency. So historically, gold has been a top inflation fighter. That historically happens later in the inflation cycle. And then the last are income-generating real assets, real assets that generate a yield. Yields are much more attractive now after the reset in interest rates to offer you a potentially positive real yield in this environment. So those are the three major categories that you own when you purchase racks, and it does it in an adaptive way where it will pivot the allocations based off of the strength of the underlying assets so you could be in a position to be adaptive throughout the inflation regime. So that was racks. Yeah, and just to give listeners a, a flavor here, if you look at the top five holdings, uh, they include PIT, which we'll talk about here in a moment, the Vanek Commodity Strategy ETF, there's the Vanek Merck Gold Shares, uh, ticker OUNCE, O-U-N-Z. There's the iShares Global Infrastructure ETF, ticker IGF. The Vanguard Real Estate ETF, ticker VNQ. And then the uh, the Vanek Gold Miners ETF, ticker GDX. And uh, David, just to be clear, my understanding is that ETF can move to cash during significant declines, at least a, a portion of the fund. Is that correct? Racks can move some of its allocation to cash during a, an extreme stress event, but that's mm-hmm. not the primary strategy. So we are looking to maintain diversification from the underlying assets. Okay. So as opposed to allocating to cash. Okay. So let's talk about the other ETF that I just noted, which is the VanNet Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker PIT, P-I-T. Uh, just explain the, the basic construction of that one. It is 
a diversified commodity strategy. So there are a lot of commodity strategy ETFs out there. This one's different in a few different ways. First off, it is very diversified. It owns over 20 commodities. The second, it's not a passive strategy, meaning it doesn't take a naive index weighting and just invest in that. What it does is it overweights and underweights commodities. It may even exclude commodities or have a significant weight into other commodities or maybe people don't have a large allocation to based off the relative attractiveness of the underlying commodities based off their technical nature. So what we're looking for is the commodities that have the most attractive return stream. And then the last part is curve placement. Where you're sitting on the commodity curve, whether in the front month or in the back, we invest based off of the implied roll yield. So what we're trying to do is position you in the best spot of the curve to make the most money. And I have to uh, note, I think listeners will appreciate the ticker pit. Uh, if if you're not getting that one, that is a nod to the uh, commodity trading pits of the past, right, where floor brokers would trade different commodities. So I always love the creativity on, uh, on ticker symbols. Um, David, just a few minutes left here. W- one thing that I have found in visiting with advisors and other investors is that they feel like commodities uh, in particular are a tactical play, that because commodities don't offer dividends and they, they don't pay interest, you're essentially just hoping they go up in price. And so because of that, uh, there, there's a timing element here. Now, I, I know your stance is that investors should maintain a strategic allocation to uh, inflation-fighting assets overall, which obviously w- would include commodities. But can you talk about that? Because I- I'm telling you that th- this mindset is a real hurdle for advisors and investors to, to allocating to these sorts of uh, assets. Sure. Commodity prices will, first off, respond immediately to supply-demand imbalances, which is why commodities have been a top-performing asset over any reasonable look-back window. So, so I want to throw that out there first. The second, you have to realize when you invest in a commodities futures ETF, which is how people gain exposure to commodities, they're investing that collateral as well. Now, because interest rates are so much higher right now, if you're earning 4 to 5% off that collateral, well, that's tacked on top of the performance of the underlying commodities. So while that argument may have been stronger in the previous regime when you weren't getting paid on the collateral, you actually are now. And you're actually getting a positive roll yield now on a lot of these individual commodities. So I I think that that argument um, made a lot more sense in the past disinflationary environment, low interest rates. I don't think it holds as well now. But I also want to preface as well, especially when, when it comes to RECs, is that We think of a diversified allocation across real assets and natural resource equities, companies that benefit directly from higher commodity prices because they're operating leverage to commodities are a great way to diversify that exposure as well. Package them all together, and we think you've got a really great solution to fight inflation. Well, David, excellent insight this week. We'll we'll have to leave it there. Listeners, highly recommend that you go check out David's blog. Uh, You can find him at vanek.com on the Insights page. I I found really interesting commentary on the current market environment and inflation in particular. But, David, thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was David Chasler, head of Quantitative Investment Solutions at Vanek. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Amplify ETFs. If you would like to learn more about Amplify ETFs, you can visit AmplifyETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by J.P. Morgan's Brian Lake. Uh, J.P. Morgan is now over $100 billion in assets, 
And so we're going to talk about that growth and some of the specific drivers like their equity premium income ETF, uh, ticker JEPI. And then CFRA's Anakit Law will dive into some of the biggest recent trends in ETFs, including active ETF flows. Until then, have a great week, everyone.